Isaiah 53, the prophecy about the rejection of the Messiah. Just take that prophecy out of the Haftarah readings. The 17th century Jewish historian Raphael Levi admitted that long ago the rabbis used to read Isaiah 53 in synagogues, but after the chapter caused arguments and great confusion, the rabbis decided that the simplest thing would be to just take that prophecy out of the Haftarah readings in synagogues. That's why today when Isaiah 52 is read, the reader stops in the middle of the chapter and the week after skips straight to Isaiah 54. What happened to Isaiah chapter 53? In the Bible, Isaiah the prophet foretells that the Messiah would be rejected by his people, suffer and die in agony, and that God would see his suffering and death as an atonement for the sins of humanity. Isaiah lived and prophesied around 700 BC. According to his prophecy in chapter 53, at the end of days, the leaders of Israel will recognize they made a mistake when they rejected the Messiah. So Isaiah put the prophecy in past tense. He also used the third-person plural, we, because he saw himself as part of the people of Israel. At the end of chapter 52, Isaiah writes an introduction to chapter 53. Behold, my servant shall prosper. Throughout the book of Isaiah, the term servant can refer to either Israel as a nation, to the prophet Isaiah, or to the Messiah, depending on the context. Here, in this context, it clearly connects back to earlier sections in the book, that speak of the servant of the Lord as the Messiah. For example, in chapters 42, 49, and 50, where the Messiah is described as a servant who suffers. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. God's servant will be high and lifted up, very high, it says. This wording refers back to the picture of God himself in Isaiah 6, 1-3, where Isaiah sees God sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. This is to emphasize the eminence of the Messiah who would in fact rise from the dead, ascend to the heavens, and sit next to the Father. His actions would give him a higher status than every human king or ruler. Just as man were appalled at you, his appearance was disfigured more than any man, his form more than the sons of men. Before the Messiah is exalted, he would suffer and be humiliated. His body would be abused and tortured so badly that he would become completely disfigured and unrecognizable. But despite horrific suffering, the day would come when even kings would come to look to him with reverence. So he will sprinkle many nations, kings will shut their mouths because of him, for what had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will perceive. And now the heart of chapter 53. Who has believed our report? This describes the lack of faith among the people of Israel who don't believe what they've heard. To whom is the arm of Adonai revealed? Isaiah calls the Messiah the arm of the Lord. Earlier in chapter 40, Isaiah declares that the arm of the Lord would rule for him. In chapter 51, the Gentiles put their hope in the arm of the Lord. And the arm of the Lord would redeem. In chapter 52, the arm of the Lord brings salvation. Now in 53, Isaiah reveals that the arm of the Lord is in fact the Messiah. The Messiah is very much part of God himself. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nor beauty that we should desire him. 
He grew up like a shoot in spiritually dry ground, because there had been no word from God for four hundred years. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He did not appeal to his chosen people. They didn't want him. His appearance wasn't particularly glorious or impressive, and the way he showed up didn't cause people to desire him. In contrast to what Rabbinic Halasha teaches today, according to this prophecy, the Messiah would not be born to a prestigious Rabbinic family or grow up in the grand residences of wealthy rabbis. It can be said with near certainty that the external appearance of the Messiah was nothing extraordinary at all. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, one for whom people hide their faces. The life of the Messiah was characterized by pain, rejection, and suffering. He didn't get the honor due to the Messiah, but was despised and rejected by the leaders of his people. They considered him some kind of social misfit, someone people might hide their faces from, someone people might hide their faces from, as when they pass someone on the street whom they are embarrassed to see. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Isaiah is speaking in first-person plural. He identifies himself together with the people of Israel. People of Israel as a whole did not esteem God's servant. God's servant here cannot therefore be Isaiah, nor the people of Israel. It has to be the Messiah. The servant of the Lord's own people didn't think he was the Messiah. His chosen people didn't even realize it could be him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our pains. Yet we esteemed him stricken, struck by God, and afflicted. The Messiah suffered on behalf of his people. He carried their sicknesses, their suffering, their pain, and the sins they committed. While the children of Israel thought he was being punished, and that his suffering was God's punishment for sins that he himself had committed, we didn't understand that it was for our sin. But he was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. The chastisement for our shalom was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. The original Hebrew text says, "Wounded, pierced, he died like someone who has fallen wounded, or someone perforated with bullets, not for any fault of his own, but it was our wrongdoing. He was crushed because of our iniquities, our sins. The punishment and discipline we deserved went to him. The stripes are hard blows that leave marks." And by his scars we are healed. In exactly this way, hundreds of years later, the prophecy was fulfilled. Jesus was brutally whipped and went to the cross in order to suffer the death we deserve. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us turned to his own way. So Adonai has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Hebrew scriptures talk of us going astray, like how sheep wander off and get lost. We all ignored him and went on our way, but despite this, God put all our sin and iniquity on him, on the Messiah. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. The Hebrew says he was exploited, abused. His dignity and rights to a fair trial were taken from him. The Hebrew says he was afflicted, tortured. But he didn't open his mouth. This shows that he did not resist his unjust sentence. He didn't try to rebel or escape, and he didn't take legal representation in spite of the fact he was facing a death sentence. But he was led like a sheep to the slaughter, without resisting the injustices being done to him. Because of oppression and judgment, he was taken away, 
As for his generation, who considered? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, the stroke was theirs. They arrested him and took him off for trial. As a result of the trial, he was cut off from the land of the living, a death sentence, not for his own crimes, but those of his people. In the scriptures, my people always means the people of Israel. The Messiah did not die for his own sin, but for the sin of his people, the people who should be taking the punishment for their own sins. But the Messiah took it upon himself. He is the one who died. His people didn't even want to bring him up in conversation, but would rather sweep his existence under the carpet. So for the past two thousand years, Yeshua the Messiah has been the best-kept secret in Judaism, and this is precisely why he was labeled Yeshu in Judaism, which stands for, May his name and memory be blotted out. His grave was given with the wicked, and by a rich man in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Even though he was taken out to be executed like a criminal, even though he did nothing wrong and never lied, in his death he was destined to be buried in the fancy tomb of a rich man. Jesus was indeed killed on the cross and was buried in the grave of a rich man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea, a member of Sanhedrin. It's a clear illustration of the ironic situation in which the Messiah receives honor for the noblest deed of them all taking the death sentence we deserve on himself. Yet it pleased Adonai to bruise him. He caused him to suffer. If he makes his soul a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the will of Adonai will succeed by his hand. So who is responsible for the death of the Messiah? The Jews? As so many Catholics have accused in the past? Maybe the Romans? They were the ones who actually crucified him? No. God was pleased to bruise him. God is the only one able to forgive and bring salvation to the world, and he turned himself into a sacrifice. What kind of sacrifice? A guilt offering. The death of the Messiah was no accident. God used his own stiff-necked people as priests in order to bring about the forgiveness of sins not only for his people Israel, but for the whole of humanity. In contrast to the Yom Kippur sacrifice, which was only valid until the following year and just covered over sin, the atonement of the Messiah took away sin once and for all. Not one human being is perfect. None are able to be that perfect sacrifice. Only God himself could do that. After that comes a very interesting statement. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. Despite being killed, he would also prolong his days. He would rise again from the dead and would see the fruit of his seed planted in his resurrection. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will make many righteous and he will bear their iniquities. The Messiah would see it and be satisfied by his labor, because many would be made righteous by the suffering he endured as a righteous man when he took on himself the sins and iniquities of many. All who recognize him as the Messiah will be his seed in a spiritual sense. Therefore I will give him a portion with the great, and he will divide the spoil with the mighty, because he poured out his soul to death, and was counted with transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and interceded for the transgressors. The Messiah was the one interceding as an advocate for sinners before a holy God. The Messiah took on his shoulders the sin of all who believe in him. It's an encouraging prophecy of hope and a future. 
God is not just interested in forgiveness expressed in words, but also demonstrated in actions. That's why he took on the appearance of a servant and took the punishment that we deserve on himself. An objection to this comes from Rabbi Haim Rettich, who writes, Is it possible that any Christian anywhere in the world could fit the description of the servant of the Lord that is led like a sheep to the slaughter? It cannot be that Isaiah the prophet could prophesy about a Christian event rather than a Jewish one. The prophecy of Isaiah is talking about the people of Israel throughout the generations, and Israel has given itself to be the innocent lamb. What irony! Despite the fact that rabbis twisted Yeshua's name into Yeshu the Christian, changing his name didn't turn him into a Christian. The official religion of Christianity was only established in the third century. Yeshua was, in fact, Jewish, from the line of David, who lived in Israel like his ancestor David. Also, when Rabbi Retich claims that the prophecy of Isaiah 53 is not about the Messiah but about Israel, that gave itself up as an innocent lamb, can it be said in actual fact that the people of Israel could be described as an innocent lamb? The writings of Isaiah will sufficiently answer Rabbi Retich's objection farther along in this chapter. And has Israel taken away the sin of the world? No. Now a few more reasons that prove it impossible for Isaiah 53 to be about Israel. The suffering servant in Isaiah 53 is consistently presented as an individual and not as a plurality or collective noun, like a people group. Verse 8 says, For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. What people was Isaiah part of? The people of Israel, of course, so my people refers to the people of Israel. Therefore Israel cannot be the suffering servant of the Lord. If the people of Israel was the servant of the Lord here, who would be my people? Moreover, the servant of the Lord suffers willingly, submissively, and without objection. The people of Israel have never suffered willingly. According to the Torah, the suffering of Israel was a result of sin, not because of their righteousness, whereas the servant of the Lord suffered as a righteous person, not because he had sinned. The servant of the Lord in Isaiah 53 was guiltless, but according to the Torah, the people of Israel were always punished and had suffered, because of their sin, and furthermore, the Gentiles didn't get healing from God as a result of Jewish people being persecuted, as some would suggest. The servant of the Lord died in our place as a sacrifice for our sin. The people of Israel, on the other hand, couldn't have legitimately suffered for the Gentiles, owing to their wickedness. Although the people of Israel were decimated in the Holocaust, they were never completely cut off. The servant of the Lord actually died and came back from the grave, the grave of a rich person. If the servant of the Lord is Israel and not the Messiah, the biblical concept of Messiah ben Yosef is suddenly torn from the book as if it never existed. In summary, we did wrong. The Messiah was punished. We sinned and he suffered. We deserve death, and he was crucified in our place. A perfect God took on the likeness of a servant in order to reveal himself to us as one of us. He allowed us to humiliate him, reject him, and torture him to death, so he could take our sins upon himself. So it seems appropriate for us to suffer for the good of others, even those who sin against us. If God, who is perfect, can forgive us, imperfect as we are, how much more should we forgive one another? This is the wonderful message of the suffering servant. The God who loves us has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. Is Isaiah 53 about the people of Israel or Messiah of Israel? Midrash Tunhamah 
It speaks of no one but the Messiah, the son of David. About 1,000 years ago, attempts were made to reinterpret the whole chapter, claiming that it does not speak about the Messiah. Some must be wondering what reinterpret means. Up until 1,000 years ago, all the wise men of Israel, the sages, understood that Isaiah 53 was about the Messiah. The claim of present-day rabbis that the chapter speaks about the people of Israel and not about the Messiah is relatively new. What did Rabbi Haim Retech say when he answered a question on the morshet.co.il website? The question asked if Isaiah 53 points to Jesus. The rabbi's complete answer is available on the website, but pay attention to the following pearls that were passed before the people's eyes. Your question raised a smile on my lips. After all, how can it be possible that any Christian in the world would fit the description of the servant of the Lord, who is brought like a lamb to the slaughter? It is not possible that Isaiah would prophesy regarding a Christian event rather than a Jewish one. Isaiah's prophecies spoke about the people of Israel. Throughout the generations, the Jewish people offered themselves as an innocent lamb. The rabbi claims that it's impossible for Jesus to be the Messiah, since it's impossible that the prophecy could be about a Christian event or about any Christian in the world. As if Jesus, the son of David from the tribe of Judah, could be described as a Christian. Not only have the rabbis distorted the name of Yeshua the Messiah to Jesus the Christian, but this rabbi also persists in the claims that the innocent lamb of Isaiah 53 is not the Messiah, but the people of Israel. But what if you discovered that it is only modern rabbis, only after the time of Jesus, who suddenly began to interpret the prophecy in Isaiah 53 as if it was about the people of Israel? And what if it was revealed to you that, in contrast, the ancient sages themselves interpreted Isaiah 53 as a prophecy about the Messiah? Sages Seeing Messiah The Jewish sages thought Isaiah 53 was about the Messiah. It's important to understand we are not just talking about a Christian interpretation here. The Jewish sages of ancient times also interpreted Isaiah 53 to be about the Messiah. In fact, the well-known term Messiah ben Yosef is actually from this very text. The ancient Jewish translation of Yonatan ben Uzil Targum Jonathan from the first century opened the section with the words, The Anointed Servant. That is to say, ben Uzil connected the chapter to the Messiah, which means the Anointed One. Rabbi Yitzhak Abravanel, who lived centuries ago, admitted with regards to Yonatan ben Uzil's interpretation that it was about the coming Messiah, as was also the opinion of the sages of blessed memory, as can be seen in much of their commentary. The book of the Zohar recognizes the principle of substitution that the suffering of the Messiah would come to take the suffering that others deserve for their sins. On the verse, Surely he has borne our griefs, the book of the Zohar says, there is in the Garden of Eden a palace named the Palace of the Sons of Sickness. This palace the Messiah enters, and he summons every pain and every chastisement of Israel. All of these come and rest upon him. And were it not that he had thus lightened them of Israel and taken them upon himself, there had been no man able to bear Israel's chastisements for the transgression of the law. Midrash Kernan, in discussing Isaiah 53, puts the following words in the mouth of Elijah, the prophet. Thus says the Messiah, Endure the sufferings and the sentence your master who makes you suffer because of the sin of Israel. Thus it is written, He was wounded because of our transgressions. He was crushed because of our iniquities. 
until the time the end comes. Tractate Sanhedrin in the Babylonian Talmud 98b writes about the name of the Messiah. His name is the leper scholar, as it is written, Surely he hath borne our griefs, and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him a leper, smitten of God and afflicted. In Midrash Tanhuma, Rabbi Nachman says, It speaks of no one but the Messiah, the son of David, of whom it is said, Here a man called the plant, and Jonathan translated it to mean the Messiah, and it is rightly said, Man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Midrash Shmuel says this about Isaiah 53. The suffering was divided into three parts, one for the generation of the patriarchs, one for the generation of Shmat, and one for the King Messiah. The prayers for Yom Kippur also relate Isaiah 53 to the Messiah. Here is the prayer added for Yom Kippur by Rabbi Eliezer around the time of the 7th century. Our righteous Messiah has turned away from us, we have acted foolishly, and there is no one to justify us. Our iniquities and the yoke of our transgressions he bears, and he is pierced for our transgressions. He carries our sins on his shoulder to find forgiveness for our iniquities. By his wounds we are healed. The deeper we go into this prayer for Yom Kippur, the more significant it gets. The prayer brings the sense that the Messiah left his people. The righteous Messiah turned away. That is to say, the Messiah has already come and left. Also, the Messiah suffered in the place of the people, and the sins of people were put on him. Then, after the Messiah suffered, he left them, and that was the reason for their concern. So the people are praying for his return. A large part of this prayer is taken straight out of Isaiah 53. So from this it can be proven that up to the 7th century, the Jewish perception that prevailed also among the rabbis was that Isaiah 53 was about the Messiah. In Genesis, Rabbah, Rabbi Moshe HaDashan says that God enabled the Messiah to save souls, but together with that, he would suffer greatly. Also, Maimonides relates Isaiah 53 to the Messiah in his epistle to Yemen. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yakai wrote, And Messiah of Ephraim died there, and Israel mourns for him, as it is written. He is despised and rejected of men, and he goes back into hiding. For it says, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. Altogether, Tractate Sutta 14, Midrash Rabbah Parashah 5, Midrash Tanhuma, Midrash Konin, Yalkut Shimoni, and actually the whole Talmud always related this chapter to the Messiah, as did all the rabbis until about a thousand years ago. All agreed that Isaiah 53 prophesies about the Messiah. The Turning Point in the Middle Ages Rashi's Revision in the Middle Ages Rashi lived, as many know, in Spain, at a time when Jews and Christians lived together, and so naturally arguments arose between them. Christian friends and neighbors of Rashi tried to convince him that biblical prophecy pointed to Jesus. Among other prophecies, they of course showed him Isaiah 53. Because the prophecy in Isaiah 53 is so sharp and clear, Rashi had no choice. He obviously didn't want to admit that Jesus was the Messiah, so he had to try to reinterpret the prophecy so that it was no longer about the Messiah, but instead about the people of Israel. Rashi's claim was that the suffering servant is a metaphor about the people of Israel, who suffered at the hands of the Gentiles. Many different rabbis, even Rabbi Sadia Gaon, 
who confronted Christians in debates, did not attribute Isaiah 53 to the people of Israel as a nation, but to a single person. Rabbi Naftali ben Ashur and Rabbi Moshe Al-Sheikh adamantly opposed Rashi's new interpretation and demanded that the sages of Israel should ignore him and return to the original interpretation. The most famous among them was Maimonides, who categorically declared that Rashi was completely mistaken. Maimonides, 1135-1204, one of the most famous rabbis of all time, in a letter to Jacob al-Fujimi, stated, What is to be the manner of Messiah's advent, and where will be the place of his first appearance? And Isaiah speaks similarly of the time when he will appear. He came up as a sucker before him, and as a root out of dry earth. In the words of Isaiah, when describing the manner in which the kings will hearken to him, at him the kings will shut their mouths, for that which had not been told them they have seen, and that which they had not heard they have perceived. In this quote, Maimonides applied Isaiah 52.15 and Isaiah 53.2 to the Messiah. The 53rd chapter of Isaiah according to the Jewish interpreters. Translation, Driver and Nubar, KTAV, 1969 page 374 to 375. But today, it is Rashi's interpretation that's accepted among the rabbis, who have joined the ranks of those who cannot admit that Yeshua could have been the Messiah, who was rejected, suffered and died, exactly as Isaiah prophesied. Therefore, it's undeniable that the source of the Jewish religion, classical Jewish thought, almost unanimously attributes Isaiah 53 to a single person and not to the people of Israel as a whole. That single person is obviously the Messiah. And let's revisit Rabbi Reddick's claim that the people of Israel are an innocent lamb. Do the people of Israel qualify as the innocent lamb? Innocent lamb is a biblical definition of someone who is without sin or blemish, someone who is never wrong, never does evil, and never sins, someone who is perfect, pure, and sinless. Do the people of Israel truly fit this definition? It's enough to open the newspapers or listen to the news to find the answer. But since our discussion started with the prophet Isaiah, let's allow him to answer this question as well. Pay close attention how he speaks to the people of Israel. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. Their feet run to evil. They are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one treads on them knows peace. Isaiah 59, 3-8 As far as Isaiah is concerned, Israel was no innocent lamb. A bitter pill to swallow... It's impossible to declare the people of Israel an innocent lamb. The prophecy of Isaiah 53 has caught rabbinic Judaism with their pants down over and over again. Therefore, it's not surprising to read the words of Raphael Levy, the 17th century Jewish researcher who discovered that in the past, Isaiah 53 used to be read in the synagogues. But since the chapter caused so much confusion and so many arguments, the rabbis decided that the simplest solution would be to remove the prophecy from the Haftarah readings. This effectively took away the key to knowledge from the people of Israel. It was done in order to hide Jesus from his people. Those who love the truth will read the prophecy of Isaiah 53 for themselves. 
is the plural form of Isaiah 53 talking about Israel? We need to focus in on this subject in particular detail, because so many children of Israel still believe today that Isaiah 53 isn't talking about the Messiah, but about the nation of Israel, suffering at the hands of the world. Some rabbis will even claim that this was always Judaism's view. However, all ancient Jewish writings, the Mishnah and Gemara Talmud and the Midrashim, as well as other manuscripts, saw Isaiah 53 as a passage talking about the Messiah, not the nation of Israel. So which is it? Let the Hebrew scholars go head-to-head with Hebrew scholars as the controversy continues below. Jewish sages preceding the medieval scholar Rashi all believed this passage to be a description of the Messiah. So when Rashi controversially first suggested that Isaiah 53 was about Israel sometime around 1050 CE, the Jewish community did not receive his new interpretation positively. As we have said, even Maimonides opposed it. Jewish sages saw Isaiah 53 as speaking of an individual, not plural. It bears repeating that Targum Jonathan interprets Isaiah 53 with reference to the Messiah singular, and the Talmud never interprets Isaiah 53 with reference to the nation of Israel as a whole, but only to individuals within it. The Jerusalem Talmud, Tractate Shekelim 5.1, applies 53.12 to Rabbi Akaniva, singular, while the Babylonian Talmud applies 53.4 to the Messiah, singular. In Sanhedrin 98b, 53.10 to the righteous in general in Tractate Berakot 5a, and 53.12 to Moses, singular, in Tractate Sota 14a. Midrash Rabbah interprets 53.5 with reference to the Messiah, Ruth Rabbah 2.14. Yalkut Shimoni applies 52.13 to the Messiah. However, once Christian missionaries started using Isaiah chapter 53 widely as a strategy to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, the number of rabbis accepting Rashi's interpretation as an easy solution grew dramatically up to the point where today the idea that it pertains to Israel is the most accepted interpretation of Isaiah 53. Rabbi Daniel Assaw in his book Singular and Plural Uses in Isaiah chapter 53 and Christianity's linguistic failure in its interpretation admits that there are 67 expressions in chapter 53 that speaks of the singular, but still assures his readers that Isaiah is merely speaking poetically about the nation of Israel as of the singular. He bases his argument on verses 8 and 9, where Isaiah is using plural instead of singular. Let's look at these two instances more closely. Lamo in Isaiah 53 verse 8. Rabbi Daniel Asor claims that according to verse 8, the character is described in the plural, not in singular, and therefore cannot be talking about the Messiah. He writes from Hebrew, the word Lamo means them, and instead of the prophet writing for the transgressions of my people, he was punished. He writes Lamo, meaning the servant is plural. That is why it is not possible for Jesus to be the Messiah. However, there are a few other possible forms that Asur fails to acknowledge. Lamo can be either plural or singular, as Isaiah elsewhere uses Lamo to mean to it, not to them. Isaiah 44.15, he makes an idol and bows down to it. So if we take Lamo to refer to the servant, it could still mean for him, as opposed to for them. Septuagint LXX The translators of the Septuagint saw a taff at the end of Lamo, making it Lamavet, to death. He was led to death. 
NJPSV, New Jewish Publication Society version. Understood Nega Lamu as for the transgressions of my people, to whom the stroke was due. The servant receives a stroke for those for whom he is suffering. So then, grammatically, the Messiah can fit perfectly with verse 8 in Isaiah chapter 53. Bematayef In Isaiah 53 verse 9, the second time Rabbi Asor noticed a plural description is in verse 9, where he believes the character is dying multiple deaths, not a single one, and therefore cannot be the Messiah. He writes from Hebrew, Any Hebrew speaker will be amazed. Why does it say Bematayef and not Bemato? How come the word moto in singular does not appear here, while the word in plural, Bemataev, does? Meaning the servant in Isaiah 53 experienced several deaths, not just one. Didn't Jesus die only one famous death? It is clear that the term Bemataev in the Bible speaks of plural, not singular. However, both in Biblical Hebrew and in Modern Hebrew, a word written in plural form doesn't necessarily mean more than one reference but may also indicate collectively intensive plural, for example, Panayev, Rahamim, Adonayev, are all in plural form, yet have a singular meaning to them. Only two references in the Hebrew scriptures refer to death in the plural. 1. Isaiah 53.9 2. Ezekiel 28.10 Ezekiel 28.10 clearly states that Ezekiel is using plural deaths in order to describe a singular death. As discovered within the Dead Sea Scrolls before Jesus was born, the verse in question was written in the singular. Translating the Septuagint, the Jewish sages also understood this verse was talking about the singular, translating it, death in the singular. The NJPSV, New Jewish Publication Society version, translated, and with the richest tomb. As a modern Jewish version, although they took out death, they still chose to render verse 9 as in the singular not plural. The Targum, Jonathan ben Uziel, a Jewish translation into Aramaic, translated Bemetev into the singular and not into the plural. If Prophet Isaiah meant the word for death to be in the plural, he probably would have used, such as appeared in 2 Samuel 1.23. See also Ezekiel 28.10. With all due respect, would Asor accuse the prophet Ezekiel as well as the interpretations by Jewish sages of ancient times as being failures? Or perhaps Asor would like to blame the Jewish Publication Society of trying to force their Jewish translation to fit Jesus. While some accuse adherents of the New Testament of twisting the Old Testament, a more careful investigation shows that this is not the case at all. Indeed, as the old Adache says, the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed and the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. Isaiah chapter 53 continues to shout the name of Jesus, Yeshua, through the sufferings and death of the Messiah for the sins of mankind as a testimony of God's love.